Tonight we're going to pick back up in our single sermon that comes in seven parts, or as some are calling it, the sermon that never ends. It is entitled, Troubled by Tulip, the Glorious Truth of God's Salvation. In this set of sermons, seven sermons, we are looking at our Savior and his marvelous gospel. What a marvelous gospel we have. What an astounding, amazing gospel we hold. And looking at that, we are looking at what is becoming a common teaching, a growing teaching called Calvinism or Reformed theology or doctrines of grace. Now, I have said I believe this sermon series is right on time. I believe that. I believe it is vitally necessary in the church today, and I'll just tell you, I believe and I know this sermon series is led by God. I believe this teaching is a false teaching, and I believe it is changing the message of the church. I believe it is changing the mission of the church at a vital time in the history of the church, at a vital, vital time. I believe it is also robbing the church of its urgency. And I think if you look around, you can see that played out today. And worst of all, I believe it mars or it disparages the character of our Savior. Tonight, we're going to continue with the third installment in our series. Tonight, our message is entitled, There is a Fountain. There is a Fountain. We're in Lamentations chapter 3. These are going to be our our focal start off verses, Lamentations chapter 3, tonight verses 19 through 23. Verses 19 through 23. I'm going to ask if you would, if you would stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's Word. Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in the 19th verse, God's Word says this. Remember my affliction and my wondering, the wormwood and its bitterness, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come, and again, we praise you tonight. We also come tonight, we seek you tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom. You tell us if we need it to ask. I pray, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom in the, in the study of your word. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be just hearers of it, but we would be shaped by it. We would be instructed, informed by it, and then our practice would be different, and that we would be people that would bring glory to your name, people that would be urgent about your mission, people that are concerned about those that need the hope of a risen Savior. Lord, again, we just come ask you to speak. I pray if there's somebody listening tonight in this room, maybe in some other way, some other means that does not know you, Lord, I pray in your great grace, in your great power, in the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that today, tonight, this very hour, might be the hour of their salvation. Lord, we just give this to you. We praise you and we thank you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
So far in our study, there is a developing reality, if not a developing theme, and that theme is this. The gospel truly is good news. This is our third message. We keep seeing that over and over. The gospel truly is good news over and over and over. Everywhere we look, every way we look, the gospel surely is good news. It is always good news. At all times it has been, it will be good news. To all people, it is good news. The, the closer we look at it, the deeper we look at it, the more we pull it apart, it is better news than we thought. We keep finding that. It's awesome news, but if we look deeply, it's better news than we thought. Now, do you know why that is? Do you know why that keeps happening? Listen to me. It is because the character of God is revealed in his gospel. That's a big deal. The character of God is known in his gospel. That's why that happens. As we look at the gospel, we're seeing our God. Now, if you think about it, it's the same way with him. He is good. He is marvelous. He is gracious. He is matchless. And the more we look at him, the deeper we look at him, we keep seeing and finding those truths. I want you to hear this, and I want you to be sure of this. <clears throat> As a preacher of the truth of the gospel, I love that. As a preacher of the truth of the gospel, I have confidence in that. I'm going to tell you something. All these years I have learned if I will just hold up the truth of God's word, if I will just hold up the good news of our Savior, Jesus, it'll be awesome. And I figured that out. It always is true. You know what? If I just hold up who Jesus is, it never fails. It's always awesome. What if that were not the case? What if that were not so? What if looking at the gospel caused us to wonder about God? And looking deeply into the gospel caused us to have questions about his nature, questions about his character. What if I told you tonight, many are teaching that the gospel is not always good news? What if I were to tell you that? What if I were to tell you many are teaching that the gospel it's not always good news for all people. What if I told you their version, in fact, of the good news was, in fact, bad news for most people, excluding them, of course? Well, I want to tell you tonight, the sad thing is that is happening. Right now in churches all around us, in our denomination, across our country, in our seminaries, in our institutions, in our mission agencies, that is happening right now. That is a growing occurrence right now all around us. And for the most part, nobody's saying a word. For the most part, they make excuses and they'll say, well, they hold that view. We may hold something different. It really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. We're not going to start a, a conflict over this. For the most part, nobody is saying a word. That's the reason for this sermon series. In our study, we have found Calvinists, those embracing Reformed theology, used an acrostic called TULIP 
to outline their beliefs. It makes it plain what they believe. So far we have looked at the T of TULIP, total depravity or total inability. We have looked at the U, we looked at that this morning, unconditional election. Well, tonight we're going to continue on and we're going to look at what I would call the most despicable of the five. It is the L in TULIP. It is limited atonement. Limited atonement is also known as definite atonement. It is also sometimes referred to, uh, usually in past days, as particular redemption. Some call it efficient atonement. It follows that Christ did not die for everyone, and he did not die for all sin, but rather only for the sins of the elect alone. It follows Jesus died only for those unconditionally elected by God, and he did not, Jesus did not die for all. Now let me give you a secret here. Most Calvinists do not like to associate with this doctrine. And so it's part of their tulip. Uh, it's part of their explanation of what they believe. But a whole uh, large number of Calvinists do not like to associate with this doctrine. And so they will say, well, I am a four-point Calvinist. I don't hold to all five of the points. For sure not this point. I am a four-point Calvinist. Some will go further and say, I am a three-point Calvinist. They are saying that in order to avoid it. Now, understand, we keep seeing, however, it is impossible to embrace unconditional election that we saw this morning or irresistible grace that we're going to look at next Sunday morning and not affirm limited atonement. Now, they could try to disassociate it if they want to. They could say, I'm four points if they want to, but those other points, they can't hold those points and not in practice affirm this point. It is actually impossible. If you're a four-point, listen, you may not like it. You may not want to be associated with it, but you believe in limited atonement. I also want to warn you here. In order, I believe, to avoid its heavy implication, they are ambiguous in the words they use to describe this. And I'll just tell you, they get into churches today, they come uh, to search communities, they get into a church, and they're ambiguous in the words they use. If you ask them, did Jesus die for all? Some of them will say, yes, all who would believe. If you say, did Jesus die for all? They'll say, yes, all, all who are the elect. Others of them will say, the atonement was sufficient enough for everyone. The atonement, yes, it was sufficient for everyone, but then they'll say this often quietly, it was just not intended for everyone. It sounds very close. I want you to be warned, it's not the same. Did Jesus die for everyone? They have to murk up the words to cough out their answer. It sounds close. It is not the same. At its core, Limited atonement affirms and teaches 
Jesus did not die for everyone. All right, let's look at it. The word atonement is a word that translates, means reparations for wrong. It's making a wrong right. It is to set even. It is, in this case, a payment for sin. Atonement is, is a payment for wrong, for sin. The Bible says the payment for sin is the shedding of blood. It is death. And so that's what atonement means. Limited translates means restricted, not full. And so the two words together, the understanding is easy to understand. It is not a full atonement. It is a limited atonement, a restricted partial atonement. Now you would say, well, where do they get the idea? <laughs> this is pretty complicated. <laughs> it's hard to get this idea. I'll try to tell you where they get it. They get it from several places. One is from a hodgepodge of verses. They'll pull these verses out. They'll pull these verses out. And they'll try to build this idea on a hodgepodge of verses. I heard a whole sermon uh, this past week in John chapter 10. And they said, Jesus calls his sheep. And he calls his sheep by name. And his sheep know the master's voice. And, the, and the, they go to the story and they go to the verse and say, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And, and, and their idea is it's not for everybody, not for the goats. It's for the sheep. Well, I have no problem with those verses. I believe the answer to that is the sheep are all the people that will believe. We are the sheep. He's the great shepherd. He's the one that leaves the 99 to go in search of the one. He's the one that came to seek and to save that which is lost. I'd also point them to this verse. They often stop short. This sermon did. And I have other sheep also which are not of this fold. Didn't talk about that verse. Talking about the Gentiles. And I must bring them as well. That's the story Jesus said. And they will hear my voice. Their idea also comes from and is built upon the rest of their faulty doctrines. Now, we've found this. We've found it for two sermons now. If you start with a problem, you end up with more problems. If you've ever built a house, you have a foundation, you get it not square, you get it not level, you're going to have problems show up through the whole entire building of the house. If you start with problems, you're going to have more problems. Well, some of this comes from their problems they have that more problems are arising. Now, let me explain that to you. Total inability. If most people are unable to respond to God, why would Christ die for them? Unconditional election. If most people are unelect, unchosen by God, why would Christ die for them? Irresistible grace. If, more, if most people are not made regenerate, given faith by God that they might receive Christ, why would Christ die for them? Well, their answer has to be, he wouldn't. And so their faulty conclusions over here bring a faulty result over here. Going further, a lot of this idea, in fact, I'll just tell you a whole lot of Calvinistic doctrines, come from their defending and probably well-meant defending things that do not need defending. 
Now, let me just tell you, part of their deal is they have to defend God as sovereign. Listen, God is sovereign, yes. He's totally sovereign, but that's not at odds with the gospel. They think they have to defend that. They, they come along and say, God is powerful to save. Yes, salvation is all of God. He is powerful, mighty to save. But that's not at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are defending things that will stand without their defense. You know what? I don't have to defend God's sovereignty. You know what he is whether I defend him or not. I don't have to come along and say, God is glorious. Oh, I want to, but I want to tell you, he's glorious whether I say it or not. They are defending things that stand without their defending. For instance, following their faulty ideas leads them to think the result of an unlimited atonement, they believe in a limited atonement, the result in an unlimited atonement would be universalism. And that's all they can see. Well, if you believe in an unlimited atonement, you have to believe in universalism. We don't believe in universalism. They would say if Jesus died to save all people, then all people will be saved. And they think that's the natural outflow of that. That's universalism. We don't believe that. They believe if that's not so, then God must be less than powerful. If he died for all people and they're not saved, he must not be powerful. He must be less than sovereign. If he died for all people to be saved and they're not saved, he's not ruling over all. And so they have to promote, because of their faulty foundation, this truth that Jesus only died for some. Let me give you another goofy example. In John chapter 17, Jesus says he prays for his own. The high priestly prayer. Jesus going to the cross, he prays for his own. There's a guy, John Owen, he's an old Calvinist. They all quote him. And he says, therefore, seeing how he doth not intercede and pray for everyone, he did not die for everyone. Now that's the goofiest conclusion I can imagine. Yeah, he's going to the cross. Yeah, he prays for those that will stand after him, the disciples. This guy says, well, he didn't pray for everybody. He's going to the cross. He must not have died for everybody. They quote that guy. Steve Lawson, one of their big preachers. He's louder than me, I think. He says, it was not for the entire world that Christ made atonement. For if he had, all the world would be saved. Says that in a sermon. John Piper, their most influential preacher, the last 10 years, 15 years, of limited atonement, he says this. It is not a good label. Now, I'll agree with him there. It's not a good label. But the limitation is in the conscious design or intention of the atonement by God. Calvinists believe that God really means to accomplish through the atonement the conversion of a limited group of people, not just hold out the opportunity to all people to believe. I want you to hear that. He says God doesn't intend to hold out the opportunity for all people to believe. Vody Bachman, another of their preachers, says this. How many people are going to be in heaven? You want to know how many people? The exact number God 
chose before the foundation of the world, not one more, not one less, Jesus only dies for the elect. And so limited atonement teaches and it proclaims. Jesus did not die for the world. Jesus did not die for the sins of the world. Jesus did not die for everyone. He only died for the elect chosen by God before the foundation of the world. As we keep seeing, faulty doctrines result in produce great problems. And that's what we keep saying. Hey, this, you, he only died for some, and it's a limit on his power. If he had died and intended them to be saved, they would have been saved. The fact they're not saved, he didn't die for them. You can say, well, I don't know how they get that, but that sounds like something. But if you embrace that, listen, more problems come. A faulty foundation, more problems come. Tonight I'm going to show you again what happens if limited atonement is true. Now stay with me. Here, these are just some of the things. I picked just a couple of them. These are the things that are true that result if limited atonement is true. The first thing is this. It's very similar to one we saw this morning. The first one is this. If limited atonement is true, God is not trustworthy in what he says. I hate to even say that out loud. That's their, that's their outflow. If limited atonement is true, God is not trustworthy in what he says. Now, let me explain that to you. God says in his word, he paid for the sins of all. He says he paid it all. We love to sing that song, Jesus paid it all. He says it is finished to tell us die, paid in full. That's what Jesus says on the cross. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, in the man Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Verse 6 says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, I'm not making this up. God says this. This is his word. Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, there's other places we could go. There's a lot of places we could stop. Here's another one. 1 John 2, 2. 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 2 says this, and he himself, talking about Jesus, and he himself is the propitiation, it's a word that means appeasement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's what the word of God says. Folks, God tells us, the marvelous truth of the cross is this. On it, Jesus paid for the sins of the world that he loved, for the world that he came to save. If limited atonement is true, God's not trustworthy in his word. And we can't say, great is thy faithfulness. There's many other conflicts we'd find in the word of God. That's just one. Second thing is this, if limited atonement is true, listen, if limited atonement is true, God is disingenuous and calls for us 
to be fraudulent in extending the gospel message to others. Now, I want you to hear that again. I want you to think about those words. If limited atonement is true, God is disingenuous and calls for us to be fraudulent in extending the gospel message to others. Now, I want you to stay with me. God says this, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, we saw it this morning. God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. He desires, he intends, he purposes that all people will be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Our verse we saw this morning, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says this, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, whosoever shall be saved. Get this. If Jesus did not die for all people, all people can't be saved. That's just how it works. That's the reality, isn't it? Think about it. That's the gospel. If, if Jesus didn't die for all people, all people can't be saved. Listen, if his death is not my death, if it's not my propitiation, if it's not my ransom, I can't be saved. I have to pay it myself. And so it is disingenuous, if not straight up fraudulent, to say, go into all creation and preach the gospel. Go ye therefore to all nations and preach the gospel. Listen, it is an empty offer. It is a sham of a hope. They come along and here's what they say. Well, we don't know who the elect are. Well, I want to tell you, it's not most people. We don't know who the elect are. That's why we have to preach it. But listen, there can be no call to believe because the Bible says they are unable to believe. It's a sham hope. It's an empty offer. It's fraudulent. It's disingenuous. Third thing we see is this. If limited atonement is true, God's grace has a limit. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. If limited atonement is true, God's grace has a limit. Now they might come up and say, well, there's a day coming when His grace won't be offered, and so there's always going to be a limit. I'll say, yes, but until then, He told us in nature. Romans says we're without an excuse when you go out and look at creation. Until then, he tells us in his word. He records it for us. We have it in his word. Until then, he tells us in the person of Jesus. Until then, he tells them in the proclamation of the church. He has been patient. He has been long-suffering. And listen to me. The history of mankind is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Our God is long-suffering. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Listen to me tonight, friend. There was no limit at the cross. There is no limit at the cross. How do I know that? Because Jesus doesn't hold anything back. And our Savior comes 
And he doesn't die half a death. He doesn't die part of a death. He goes to the cross, and there on the cross of Calvary with nothing held back, it is grace upon grace upon grace. And as his blood runs out, it is total grace. Listen, it is all given at the cross of Calvary. If limit atonement is true, God's grace has a limit. The fourth thing is this, and I don't know, this one takes the cake for me. If limited atonement is true, God does not love all people. Follow with me. If limited atonement is true, God does not love all people. Now, several of these popular preachers today, you can go look on YouTube, you can Google this. They actually say, most of them say it with a smile, we need to quit telling people God loves them. They actually say that. We need to quit telling people God loves them. Now, there's several others, and they say it's okay to tell them God loves them, but it's a different kind of love. They actually have three definitions of love. Yeah, it's okay. We don't want to tell them God doesn't love them, but it's a different kind of love. One of them says it's a benevolent kind of love. It's R.C. Sproul. I'll tell you his name. He says God sends rain to them. Well, I want to tell you, I, I, I heard that sermon and I thought this. Well, big deal. He sends rain to them on the way to hell. Big deal. How silly is that? He showed them love. They had no way to be saved. They had no hope of a different result. But it rained on them on the way to hell. How silly is that? Folks, see this tonight. God himself, listen to this. You want to know about God's love? Listen to this. God himself ties his love to the cross. I didn't do that. God ties his love to the cross. 1 John 4, 9, 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. 1 John 4, 9 says this. By this the love of God was manifested, means made known, in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have life in him. Listen to me. The atonement of the cross, the redemption through Christ, the salvation through faith, all of those are tied to the love of God. He did that. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. He shows us his love. How much does he love us? He shows us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to me. God's love is shown in the cross of Calvary. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the glory of the Savior of our gospel. There is no greater love. There is no greater love for God so loved the world. If limited atonement is true, God doesn't love everybody. Do you see the collapse of his character that's going on? Do you see listening to their teachings, the disparaging of his very being? He's not love. The Bible said he's love. 
Do you see how ugly this is? There is a story in the Gospel of Mark. It's in chapter 4. I was reading there this week. And in this story, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is teaching. And his ministry has started and it's, and it's going. And it says, they go here and they go there. And he preaches here. And he is preaching and he is teaching and he is healing, and he heals somebody, and a crowd comes, and everybody comes, and, 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 and he's healing folks, and he's training the disciples. And so he's doing this, and he's doing this, and he's training the disciples as well. And Jesus is tired. Mark chapter 4. And so he says, let's leave, and let's go over to the other side. They get into the boat. Now, I picture that. You can almost see the crowd as they try to push in on him as they see him getting into the boat and they know that he's leaving and the time is running out. And so they, they start to follow him out. Maybe they get thigh high in the water and they start to follow him out and maybe they're shouting out, hey, don't leave, not yet. And you can almost see the picture as they push off and as they move out into the sea that the crowd gets smaller and their voices get fainter and it fades into silence. Bible says Jesus goes to sleep. Says he goes down to the bottom of the boat. What a, what, a, what a picture that is. The king of kings, the savior of the world, he's tired. He goes down to the bottom of the boat and he goes to sleep. The story goes, you keep reading the account that there's a fierce storm that blows up and there's waves and they come up and they're breaking over the boat. That's what the Bible says. And, and another set of waves and another set of waves and they're breaking over the boat and the boat is filling up with water and they're in great peril, and the, the disciples are looking around, and there's great danger, and another set of waves. The disciples come into the bow. They wake up Jesus, and they say this, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, it's actually making another point there in, in Mark 4. He actually rebukes them for their lack of faith. That question has stuck with me. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? What a question for today. As sinners, here we are, and we're stained in our sin, guilty in our sin, and we're suffering in the course of life. And we're hurting and we're hopeless in life and we're broken in our sin and there's, there's brokenness all around us and it's what we toil in. And the Bible says of us in our sin that we are perishing all the long day. That's what the Bible says. Does the teacher care that we're perishing? Does he care? Does he care? Does he see us? Does he care that we're hurting in our sin? Does he care? Listen, the answer is this. The God of all creation, you're about to hear the gospel. The word of God, Jesus, Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace, he comes into creation, the creation that he created. Can you imagine that? He humbled himself, becoming a man, taking the form of a man. He comes as a man. As a man, he comes and he suffers. The Bible says he is a suffering servant. 
He is one we esteem not, one that we counted as stricken as what the prophet Isaiah says. And he comes into his own. Surely they will receive him, the Bible says. In the Gospel of John, they receive him not. He comes. He goes to the cross of Calvary. Not one sin has he ever committed, the perfect Lamb of God. He goes to the cross of Calvary, and he goes to cheers, crucifying, crucifying. And he's beaten and he's whipped and he's stripped naked. And he's nailed to a Roman cross for no sin of his own. Not one sin had he ever done. But listen, but for your sin and for my sin, for our sin, the Bible says he even became sin. He's nailed to the cross of Calvary. The payment for sin, appeasing a holy God, shedding his own blood, the perfect lamb of God. And there we could come to the cross of Calvary. And there we could ask him, does the teacher not care? Does the teacher not care? Listen to me, friend. Look to the cross of Calvary. No greater love. No greater love. Listen to me today. Limited atonement is filth. It's filth. You want to know how much God loves you? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Listen, look to Calvary. And there is our Savior. And yes, he is sovereign. And yes, he is gracious. And yes, he is just. And there he stands in my place and in yours. The demonstration of God's love. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come. Oh, what a Savior. What a gospel. What good news. Lord, forgive us when people try to change the story. Try to limit your grace. Try to limit your love. Try to limit the sacrifice, the purchase of your cross. Lord, we come and we praise you today. You did not hold anything back. And the word from lamentation, Lord, your compassions, your mercies are new, exceedingly so, every single day. Poured out in the person of Jesus, made known in the cross of Calvary. Lord, I pray if there's one that's listening in this place and maybe some other place that doesn't know your grace, that doesn't know your love, that they would understand today there is a God that loves them. And whatever they've done, whoever they are, Whatever distance they've traveled, the God loves them. And his grace is offered to them in the person of Jesus. Not some group that marks them off. Not some group that excludes them, but in the grace of God. Them as well. Me as well. Lord, we praise you for that. I, I pray that today in the hearing of good news, that the response would be great. The hindrances would be removed. That many, Lord, would hear your good news and turn to you. And then, Lord, we come and we end this service by saying we are in awe. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you. We hold up your name. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close this service with a time of response, a time of invitation. And I want to tell you the good news of our gospel is this. It extends to you, extends to me. All sinners, the payment's been paid for. Tetelestai, paid in full in the cross of Calvary. 
If you'll turn to Jesus, I want to tell you the, the good news of the gospel is this. He will save you today. He will save you today. If you never trusted Jesus, turn to him tonight. If you're here and, and you've trusted Christ, you've never fought on believers' baptism, what a great time to say, I want to testify to his goodness and his gospel. Maybe you're here looking for a church home tonight, and you'd say, you know what, I believe God has led me here, and I want to unite, and I want to uphold this good news until he comes again or calls me home. Maybe you want to come on a Sunday night and pray here at an altar. Maybe you want to pray with me. Whatever your decision is, whatever God has led you to do, I'm going to ask that you'd respond in confidence tonight. As we stand and sing, if God has spoken to you, you step out. You come on. I'll meet you here.